Hello and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Reptile Living Room. I'm your host as always, John F. Taylor, and tonight we are brought to you once again by the wonderful and lovely Marsha McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos for all of your captive care needs, or geckos as it were, in the ways of nefaris, uh, African fat tails, leopard geckos, and even the colionic species. Feel free to check out Marsha at GoldenGateGeckos.com. Like I said, she's a wonderful lady, lots of information out there. Do give her a tumble and check her out. It's once again Marsha McGinnis at GoldenGateGeckos.com. In today's episode, we are talking with none other than Rico Walder of Signal Herpeticulture about uh, green tree pythons and uh, some of the breeding projects that he's working with. And uh, he gives us some real nice insights on what it's like to own and work with the uh, green tree pythons as well as some other species. So without further ado, here is Rico Walder. Uh, Signal Herpeticulture. And today we're on the uh, line with Rico Walder from uh, Signal Herpeticulture. Personally, Rico, I've I've known you, or known about you, I should say, uh, from the Reptiles magazines for quite some time, because you always have an advertisement in there, and I always drool over the pictures that you guys provide of the uh, green okay. tree pythons. <laughs> so, um, how did you get, I guess, best, the, the uh, best place to start with, how did you actually get started with the green tree and the emerald tree bows? Well, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, they've always been a species that's fascinated me and uh, really enjoy and always been intrigued by arboreal things. Uh, okay. So uh, that just kind of naturally led into uh, into those species. And, you know, they're just, they're pinnacle species, have Definitely. been for a long time in the hobby, and it's just something I've always strived to, to kind of get to. Right, right. I definitely agree that they're, they're definitely a pinnacle species. They're not for a beginner. Now, um, <clears throat> speaking of pinnacle species, what specifically is, are there uh, major differences when caring for emerald tree boas versus uh, green tree pythons, or are they kind of the same or completely different? They're, they're very similar. Okay. Uh, they're, you know, obviously great examples of convergent evolution. Uh, you know, they occupy a very similar niche um, ecologically on opposite sides of the planet, wow. uh, which has been very fascinating. Another thing that makes them very fascinating to me, they are a little bit different in personality, behavior, uh, care to somewhat uh, the same basic, you know, kind of boa and python parameters as far as temperature and humidity uh, work pretty well with them. But they do have differences in personality as well as differences in metabolism and uh, prey digestion and things like that. Oh, okay. Now, what was the first reptile species that you ever kept? Oh, that's falling into the Wayback Machine. Um, <laughs> that's probably most likely a wandering garter snake uh, when I grew up in Seattle. Uh, okay. Probably catching them around, you know, on my way to school or just watching them. I always enjoyed, you know, stopping at all the local ponds on the way to and from school and seeing all the amphibian life and the other stuff that was just hanging around uh, the water, you know, uh, courses and mm-hmm. you know, areas. So, Okay. Now, what made you stick with... Um what was, uh, I guess, what was the driving factor behind staying with uh, reptiles versus, you know, getting into dogs or cats or, you know, what most people would consider the cute and cuddly realm? Well, you know, I think, yeah, I guess most people consider them cute and cuddly, but <laughs> after, you know, and I, I say this with a grain of salt because, I mean, we have 
cats and dogs as well as, you know, we have oh, sure. what you would qualify normal pets, but, right. you know, uh, cats and dogs are, are pretty, you know, pretty impressive predators in their own right. And, True. Yeah, I'm not so sure cute and cuddly always applies, but, you know, I guess the masses and the world huh. in general kind of considers them to be cute and cuddly, but uh, right. I think you know, a lot of herps are pretty cute and cuddly too, so right. I guess it's all a matter of opinion in okay. some ways. Fair enough. Uh, but, you know, um, you know, like I said, we've got dogs and cats, but, you know, reptiles have always just intrigued me from, you know, biology, natural history, behavior, adaptability to their specific microenvironments. Just okay. lots of things about them are really intriguing and fascinating, and, you know, that's kind of what caught my attention pretty early on in, in life. Okay. All right. And now, what was it... Um do you remember specifically uh, what it was that attracted you um, to the arboreal species of pythons? Was it just walking by a reptile shop one day, or is it a television program you saw? Um, I don't know. I guess I had seen them on TV and in encyclopedias and books and all kinds of things when I was a kid growing up. Uh, okay. You know, one of my first jobs uh, as a you know young teenager was working in a pet store. I was you know kind of their mouse and rat boy. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, so they, and they sold tropical fish and had some reptiles and things. And, you know, they, I guess one of the first snakes I had ever been bitten by, that I can remember at least, was a green tree python. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was an animal that they had in the store. It didn't shed right. I was told to go take it and soak it. And sure enough, I did. And, you know, during the process, I must have annoyed the heck out of the animal because it, it gnawed on my hand pretty well. And I don't know if that really you know, ingrained it into my blood or not, but, you know, I was always just interested and fascinated by the variability in colors and behavior and everything about the green tree pythons. Right, right. Now, speaking of the variability of colors and stuff like that, um, just for the edification of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the green trees, um, now they are born uh, sometimes, or maybe all the time, you're the breeders, so I'll let you answer it, <laughs> as uh, red or yellow or, you know, just some really bright colors, and then they change to a green color, or how does that... How yeah, I mean, green tree, yeah, green tree pythons are found over a fairly wide range. They're found over the, mostly in the island of New Guinea, except for the really high peaks and okay. some of the really, you know, low, dry savanna areas. But they're found in a diverse array of habitats. They're found over a fairly wide area. They're also found on some surrounding islands around New Guinea. Uh, they're also found on the northern tip of Australia. Mm -hmm. So they occupy a lot of different ecological sort of environments and climates. Um, they go through, the babies are, are born either yellow or red, um, or some Know, variation of red. There's a lot of different shades of reds as well as some different shades of yellows. Hmm. Um, and they've they've actually discovered there have been some researchers basically out of Australia that have done uh, a lot of field studies and looking at genetic work and determined that there's a defined genetic difference between northern and the southern populations of green tree pythons. Oh. Uh, the southern population uh, actually, uh, O'Shea and uh, Sheep uh, recently published a paper that, uh, based on the progenitor work that was done by Rawlings and Donilon uh, back in 2002, 2003, I think, or at least it was published in 2003, that 
there are two very distinct populations, genetically separate, although visually very similar. Um, they're, I think they're calling them sister taxa. Mm -hmm. But the southern population, which includes the northern population of uh, Australia, as well as the southern portion of New Guinea and some of the southern surrounding islands, produce almost or basically entirely yellow babies. They don't produce red babies. It's the northern population the, you know, on the northern side of the mountain, dividing mountain range in New Guinea, that produces animals that you know can have red babies. Now, not necessarily entire clutches are red. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're mixed. Um, you know, it's 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 yet one more fascinating aspect of the green tree pythons that keeps getting uncovered. No kidding. That is amazing. So there's, wow, there's two separate, basically, genetic makeups. Yeah, I, we'll wow. see if it's accepted by the scientific community or not, but right now the northern population, which includes the locales of uh, Bioc, mm -hmm. as well as Jayapura and uh, some of the, the northern cities and areas uh, uh, within the range, uh, has actually been elevated to a full species now. Uh, it's called Mor Morelia azurius, and we'll see if that holds up uh, over time. If you know the scientific community takes that into heart, but, right? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, things that we thought were all one species, you know, two decades ago when when I was kind of early getting started into some of this is mm -hmm. now. Well, who knows what's going to happen? Wow, that is that, <laughs> that is quite amazing. How do you stay on top of all this anyway? I'm I'm kind of a book geek and a you know okay. uh, a nerd and I you know buy lots of books and I look at lots of journals and you know I try to stay as connected as I can with some of the stuff yeah. that's coming out you know that explains it. you're a lot like me I have books that I haven't even touched yet that I've had for like a year just because I'm trying to catch up right very cool now yeah um, we need to come up with a way to make more hours in the day yeah very definitely especially with you and your breeding programs and everything else you got going. I can't even imagine. Now, um, as far as breeding is concerned, when did you first start breeding uh, the snakes? Uh, this particular species or just breeding in general? Uh, just breeding in general, and then we'll get back into the green trees and the emerald, uh, emerald bows. Right. Well, I guess uh, my first... My first breeding of, of any reptile was was kind of done accidentally. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> That's always a good I mean, thing. I, yeah, I mean, I wasn't necessarily even trying. I just I was keeping some pet snakes as a young teenager, and you know, working at this particular pet store, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, happened to go on a rather extended vacation, and so I boarded my snakes at the store and. Lo and behold, while I was gone, they were having a good time. Um, <laughs> and I came back, and, you know, my snakes wouldn't eat, and things were looking weird, but they were really big and fat. And then come home from school one day, and there's a big old pile of eggs underneath this snake. And it's like, oh, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> uh, so that kind of kind of got me into the whole uh, breeding realm. And from there, it just kind of snowballed and, you know, got bigger and bigger the point of almost insanity now. So. Wow, wow. And when did you first start breeding the uh, green trees and the uh, emerald tree boas? Uh, well, I used to keep them back in, uh, I guess it was probably the mid-80s, and had gotten out of them for a while when I made a move across the country for uh, you know, job, career-oriented right. stuff. 
Uh, and then got back into it, probably started with Green Trees back in 1990, and uh, had been working with those for uh, several years, probably five or six years, and then decided to get back into the emeralds after I was having some success with the Green Tree Pythons. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what are some of the early issues that you ran into with uh, breeding the emerald feebos and the green trees? Uh, the early stuff was really acquiring good quality stock. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, back back then, you know, green trees really weren't coming into the country uh, at all, so you were having to find uh, captive bred babies that were, you know, few and far between. Back then, they were pretty darn expensive and, you know, hard to come by. And emerald tree boas, you know, very few people were breeding those back then. And so what you had available were imports and, you know, all the problems associated with acclimating imports from, you know, parasitism oh and disease and everything else. I mean, if you have any idea about emerald tree boas, they can, imported animals can be a real nightmare. Right, right. Okay. Now, in your opinion, what's the hardest part about being successful in the reptile industry? Uh, all of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the hardest part? Geez, there's so many hard. It's all hard. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, keeping the animals alive, providing all their needs, uh, you know, having all the equipment and the cages and the knowledge about, behind it. Uh, I mean, it's all challenging. And then, you know, when you do get you know, babies or eggs, trying to incubate the eggs or keep those alive, and when the babies hatch, getting them feeding and established, and you know, trying to develop a good reputation and uh, you know, a good following of people, you know, that trust in you and believe in your abilities to you know provide good quality animals and you know, the customer support side of it, you know, making sure that your customers succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, because if they have bad experiences, then they're likely to either just continue trying to keep the species or just get frustrated and go elsewhere or do something different. So there's there's, there's endless amounts of challenges with it. Right, right. Now, take us through a a daily routine at Signal Herb as far as uh, snake keeping is concerned. Or actually, I should say reptile keeping because you guys keep a various amount of reptiles now. Yeah, you know, we've expanded got a few different species, but you know, I guess my day starts with morning rounds, um, you know, usually enjoying a nice cup of coffee, which is always a good thing. Right. I'm not a real morning person, so actually the arboreal stuff works well because they're somewhat nocturnal. So right. That, that kind of helps. But, you know, I'll come up and I'll do rounds, go through the collection, look at all the animals, check all the cages, make sure everything's okay, you know, Note what's going on, uh, you know, as far as you know, any behaviors, any reproductive events, if anything's happening there. You know, a lot of times you'll see that early in the morning. Mm-hmm. So go through and do that stuff, make whatever notes in the computer record-wise that I need to do, and then from there start cleaning and checking on animals and, you know, or giving instruction to uh, the employees that I have as far as taking care of, you know, what needs care that day, what needs to get done, all that type of stuff, answering emails, uh, you know, that's probably another thing that's reasonably early in the day, emails, phone calls, returning, that kind of stuff. Right. 
you know, and then, you know, in the afternoons, you know, early parts of the week, we'll pack shipments and get those out, make our runs to FedEx, uh, come back in the evenings and feed animals as necessary or as appropriate. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, speaking of FedEx, do you guys uh, ship worldwide? Uh, we do ship worldwide, yeah. Okay. Um, obviously, I can't use FedEx for that, unfortunately. Right. But, right. Uh, domestic shipments are all done via FedEx, and international shipments, uh, yeah, we can do you know through whatever major airlines are servicing that part of the world. Oh, okay. And the reason I asked about the international thing is because we do have a lot of international listeners, so just in case oh, you know someone, <laughs> and and for some reason I have a. It's really strange. I have a large following in Singapore for some reason on the reptile living room. But anyway, oh, <laughs> so, just want to yeah, sure always cover that, you know, with any of my guests. I sure. always want to ask them, you know. Right. Well, you know, one of the advantages we have as far as international shipping goes is uh, we're uh, we've been approved for a master file with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, so we have CITES permits on hand and ready to go. So. Oh wow. For the species that we're working with, which you know, a lot of the ball python and boa guys, and you know, carpet python and blood python guys, and things have that. But I believe I'm the only one in the U.S. with uh, with that status. So, yeah, I I've never heard that mentioned before. So, and you've been doing it long enough. I would <laughs> I would presume that you'd be the only one to have that uh, capability or status. Now, speaking of uh, status within the industry. What are some of the major changes you've seen uh, since you began personally in the industry? Oh, there, you know, the Internet was a huge game changer. Okay. Uh, you know, back in the, the early days when I was first getting started, I mean, you were lucky to get a paper price list mailed out to you once a month with, you know, what some dealer in some far-off state might have had. Right available when the list got printed and by the time it got to you it was probably sold or gone or <laughs> whatever so uh, you know nowadays it's like you know you get an email and you know it's like hey can you get me you know new pictures of this animal or that animal in you know the next 10 minutes or something and so mm-hmm. just the internet has changed the way business is conducted across all industries just dramatically and it's certainly not been the reptile industry has not been left behind on that. Okay. Now, speaking of the uh, internet and the way it's changed the uh, reptile industry, do you think it's been? Do you think it's more of a negative aspect or more of a positive aspect? Oh, I definitely think it's a positive, positive aspect. Okay. Oh yeah, I think you know it's great for the customer because they can you know have much more communication with the the breeders and the suppliers that they have. They can actually have pictures and images of the animals. They can look at you know, reptile forums and boards and, you know, classified sections and all kinds of things and get feedback from other people, you know, mm-hmm. the social networking side of it, the whole Facebook and uh, that Twitter and that whole realm. It's like, you know, you can get feedback on, you know, somebody you've just gotten an animal from or you're thinking about getting an animal from before you ever buy the animal. So, you know, how they conduct conduct business with other people and so, you know, mm-hmm. you can feel more comfortable comfortable and confident with, with who you're going to be dealing with. Right, right. Understandable. Now, as far as uh, the litigation is concerned um, and its effect on the industry, does um, does that have any, or should I say the proposed legislation, do you see that having any effect on, on your business personally as a python and boa breeder? 
It may. There's certainly going to be some challenges uh, with that you know, proposed legislation if it actually goes through. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be some good opportunities uh, coming along with it as well. I'm sure it's a, a mixed bag. It's really unfortunate that we have to see uh, you know, a time when things like this get legislated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I really kind of wish that the industry had taken a little bit more uh, responsibility in what we had done over the years as far as selling and dealing some of the big species and uh, and things, you know, that, you know, the species that are being proposed. Right. I think we could have headed off a lot of this uh, potential, um, you know, negativity on the industry right. had we been and people been a bit more responsible with it in the past. Right, and I totally agree with that. And I'm actually um, glad you said that. You're actually uh, one of the first people to actually come right out and say that, you know, we could have done better in the very beginning to prevent this by, you know, being more responsible with the larger species. Yeah, I think, you know, people and the industry and the breeders have to take a responsibility for what they're, uh, what they're providing, and mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a gun dealer or a knife dealer or a reptile dealer or you know you sell cars or whatever. You know you've got to you've got to be personally responsible for the products that you're selling, and mm-hmm. uh, you know ex- accept and know that you know not everybody out there uh, should have what you're what you're offering for sale. Right, right. And to me, it seems like it would just be a matter of you know not necessarily interrogating every customer. But just having a conversation with them, and you know, you can generally gauge what their um, level of expertise is, and pretty much go from there. I would think. Sure. Yeah. And you know, that's certainly something that we do here, uh, because you know, obviously, as you probably know, green tree pythons and emerald tree boas are probably not the best pets in the world for everybody under the sun. Right. You know, certainly not. You know, your very first snake is probably not the best species <laughs> to be working with. So. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, <clears throat> like yourself, I um, I actually didn't get tagged, but it it let me know that what was going to happen if I kept <laughs> working right. in and around its enclosure when it was awake. <laughs> right. And uh, so yeah, I have, <laughs> and that was also at a pet shop. So I have all the respect in the world for you that you actually work and are able to breed and you know still <laughs> keep going. Right. Um, now, now, speaking of uh, your uh, facility there, rough guess, because I don't want to, you know, put you on the spot or anything, rough guess, about how many animals do you have in-house at one time? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I could run a report off the computer and everything's in a database. Oh, wow. Um, but, yeah, and, you know, the collection's gotten to the point to where I, I really kind of need that, and it's it's gotten to be a beautiful thing because I use a barcode scanner now and every animal has its own ID label with its own barcode and all my activities and prey items have barcodes and so it makes record keeping a whole lot easier. Um, awesome. But uh, I guess I'd have to say rough estimate, uh, the collection is somewhere between six and 700. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is just awesome. Now, um, as far as collections go and stuff like that, I've seen a lot of people um, hybridizing certain species, mm-hmm. and I've seen them, and now correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they've actually started doing stuff with green tree and emerald tree boas, crossing something with them. 
Yeah, there have been a few crosses with with both of those species. Okay. Uh, I think some of the first ones, at least with the green tree pythons, were accidental. Um, I know it, there was a zoo that actually had a, a New Guinea or an Australia exhibit or something and had carpet pythons and green tree pythons housed in the same exhibit. And, uh, my understanding is, you know, that they somehow got, uh, you know, they had opposite sexes in there and the snakes bred and I think the keepers probably thought, oh, look at that, that's funny, I wonder what will ever happen to that. And didn't think anything more of it and then right. all of a sudden we've got, you know, babies and once it kind of leaked out to the private sector, there were a number of people who kind of jumped on that bandwagon right away and tried to make uh, more hybrids. So, right, right. Now what's your opinion on that as far as creating hybrids to sell to the public? I don't know, I have mixed feelings on it. Um, in some ways, I'm a little bit of a purist, but in other ways, you know, I I understand and realize that basically these captive animals are just that. They're captive animals. They're, uh, the, you know, 99.999% of them will never, ever be in any kind of a reintroduction program. Right. Um, you know, so they're not, you know, our captive stuff is not here to save the species. We're basically doing this to meet the human needs and desires that, you know, we have. So, you know, in some respects, I don't really you know, have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. However, I do think that, you know, ethics does come into play and that, you know, any animals that are, you know, the progeny of hybrids should be openly disclosed and documented. Uh, oh, I see. And, okay. You know, people shouldn't be out there trying to pass something off as, oh, this is just a really special or weird or new form of this or that or the other thing, but, uh, you know, there there definitely needs to be some disclosure so that whoever's getting it knows exactly what they've got uh, uh, and, you know, what to do with that in the future is, is obviously up to them, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, at least the information is there and made available to them. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, <clears throat> for someone who was, um, let's say, wanted to start breeding uh, the green trees and the emerald uh, uh, boas, emerald tree boas. There, what would you be? What would you recommend? I guess would be the best way to put it. Don't start. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, go for it if that's what you really are interested in doing, and you know, you have an honest desire to do it. Um, you know, just realize what you're getting yourself into. It's you know going to be a challenge. There's going to be some obstacles and some disappointments and. You know, you just have to kind of work through that. I'd say, you know, if you want to get into the reptile breeding, you know, hobby, business, whatever, I'd say don't start with those species. I'd say find something that's a little bit easier to to work with right Mm -hmm. off the bat. Kind of get your experience and get some of the uh, basic techniques and, you know, management practices and husbandry. down and establish with other species mm-hmm. uh, first, and then you know work your way up to that. Okay. All right. Now, uh, as far as uh, information is concerned, um, other than your website, which has got tons of information on it, you actually wrote a book um, specifically for your customers called the Owner's Manual. Yeah, it's just it's a small um, about twenty page booklet that uh, I wrote and. You know, we print as needed, um, or actually have a print shop that prints them for me, you know, a few hundred at a time. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's basically started off as just like a little husbandry guide, sort of a 
you know, expanded care sheet type of a thing. Okay. Uh, that I give out to the customers and things, and, you know, people were wanting to buy that, you know, just on its own, and so I just started selling it for a couple dollars more than it cost me to print it. So. Right. But right. It, it covers most of the basic information that you need out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, would you recommend the species for um, someone who's had experience, let's say, keeping reptiles in uh, in an apartment? Would you recommend this as an apartment species? Um, certainly it could be. I mean, they don't require a great deal of room. Um, you know, all the equipment and uh, housing that you would need is, is readily available, mm-hmm. um, you know, through you know, typical suppliers and stuff. So they could be housed in an apartment okay. uh, pretty conveniently. All right. Now, as far as the uh, morse are concerned, I know on your site alone, there's uh, a lot of different morphs, or what I consider morphs anyway. Um but specifically under the heading of the green tree pythons, you have them separated into locality and designer types. Can you right. give a little bit of background? Because as far as locality, because some people say, well, there's really no locality species because it's not really a true species. Can you give us a little bit of background on the uh, you know different localities that you're uh, considering? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, basically what I've done is I've tried to lay the website out uh, so it's, somewhat educational to the new person getting into the, the interest level in green tree pythons. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what I basically try to do, because I, you know, as I said earlier, green tree pythons are found over a fairly wide range yeah. uh, in some various different habitats. And so they've evolved over time to with all these different uh, sort of visual appearances. And, you know, like anything else, visual appearance can be deceiving. There's right. a lot of characters that you have to look at, and uh, to kind of get at least a, even a guess or a, uh, an idea of what, where within the range a locality type animal may have come from. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, there has to be this disclaimer that there's no way anybody can really document exactly where that animal came from, unless they're the ones taking it out of the tree. Uh, sure. Know? Sure. Uh, there's, you know, there's just there's no documentation available. There's also, you know, not legal to be uh, exporting wild green tree pythons out of Indonesia or uh, Papua New Guinea or oh. Australia, any of the countries that they're found in. Um, they all have to, you know, Indonesia is the only country that exports green tree pythons at this point. And uh, my understanding is through Indonesian law that all animals coming out of there have to be produced in captivity. Oh, now, whether or not, you know, whether or not that's really happening or not can be taken with a grain of salt. Right. Just based on looking at what's out there, what's available, and, uh, you know, some of the, the parasite loads that some of those animals come in with. Um, okay. Know, there's, there's probably some fudging going on there, I would imagine, but, you mm-hmm. know, that's, that's, that's a problem that Indonesia may have, and you know, I don't know how you solve that. Uh, right. Right. That's best for them to, to work out. Sure. But there are, you know, nonetheless, there are a number of different uh, populations, whether they be on islands or various parts of the mainland, different elevations that have different visual appearances. Okay. And so on my website, what I've tried to do is sort of lay out the locality types. It's kind of what we call them, or, or type. Okay. Because there's, you know, no real documented locality, but, you know, and there are a few characteristics that we look at, and we can determine, you know, 
what these animals originated, you know, where their parent stock originated from. Oh, okay. And so, uh, you know, that kind of helps people get an idea what those different locales will look like. Sure. And then the, the designer side is, you know, some of the animals that we have have pedigrees that go back 35 years, back to the mid-70s. And, you know, back in the early days, you were lucky to get a live green tree python, much less know, you know, what part of the range it came out of uh, and what you paired up with. So a lot of these things got different, you know, localities mixed together, and so, you know, started producing animals with different colors and different patterns and appearances and, you know, humans being humans, we never think that nature is, is cool enough on its own, so we've got to take those animals and manipulate them uh, to produce things that you know, we find visually appealing and, uh, and interesting. And so that's where some of the designer stuff has come, come out of. It's just some selective breeding over multiple generations to, to get these really strange, you know, incredibly beautiful looking animals. Right, right. Now, of course, <clears throat> because according to what I, what I know of the species anyway, it seems like the, uh, the blue species for any reptile is like the epitome of breeding. And you've already pretty much produced it for the green trees, it looks like, from what I was checking out a couple days ago. Right. Well, you know, blue is one of those colors in nature that's really hard to, to come by. There are very few animals that really display blue as a, as a color. And you know, green tree pythons are pretty few and far between as well, at least the solid blue ones. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the natural forms do have a lot of blue highlights or blue dorsal markings and things in their natural colors and patterns. Okay. And some of these animals, especially the, the particularly what we call the true blue or the super blue animals, where the overall animal is predominantly a blue color. Right. Um, you know, a lot of that has come from selective breeding from many, many generations uh, in captivity. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to throw a little caveat in there, too, because there are some uh, green tree pythons that will naturally turn blue through a uh, reproductive event within their life. And it's typically it's females um, that go through a hormonal change when they're uh, going through follicle development and egg production where the yellow oils in their skin get absorbed uh, back into the body and this sort of underlying blue color really comes out Uh, and so you'll see these kind of sky blue green tree pythons and uh, you know sometimes those females will hold that blue color other times they'll shift back to green but then with each reproductive event may continue to hold more and more of that blue color Uh, that what we term hormonal blue color is is really not a genetically reproducible morph. Um, oh. I'm, I'm sure that you know the offspring, the female offspring of a hormonally blue female, when they go into reproduction, have a reasonably good chance of going hormonally blue themselves. However, you'll not get uh, blue males produced out of uh, hormonal blue females, and not all of the Females' offspring will wind up going through those hormonal changes as well. So, uh, really, what the epitome of the green tree python, blue green tree, is, is an animal that goes directly from its neonate colors, whether it be red or yellow, however. Right. You know, the, the captive lines have essentially been selected for red neonates, you know, 
along with the blue adult color. Um, you know, if you see a baby that goes directly from its neonate colors to uh, a blue, you know, sub-adult or adult juvenile coloration, that's what everybody's after. That's the piece de resistance of, of right. tree pythons. That's just amazing. Now, because <clears throat> um, are there? Do you see foresee any other uh, as far as morphs, or uh, I guess what you are terming desire types, other than what's already currently being produced at Signal Herp? Do you see anything that, or can you actually reveal anything that you're working on currently that you might see in the next uh, show or next year? Um, well, we're working on a couple of different morphs. Certainly the high black stuff is has kind of made an appearance on the green tree python scene here in the last several years. And, okay. And there's been very, very limited availability on those. Uh, but we are working on hopefully getting some more of those out uh, to market. Uh, and so hopefully I have some of those in the next year or so mm -hmm. to really help kind of fill demand. We're also working with the albino uh, gene, which is a recessive morph. It's right. really the only recessive morph in green tree pythons. Uh, so far, we've not had a great deal of luck, but our animals are still pretty young, and we do have some clutches cooking now that have potential for uh, you know producing some albinos. So there may be some very limited availability in the next year or so of those as well. Very nice. Very cool. Now, uh, <clears throat> just before we let you go, we always like to ask our guests, um, if money was no object and you know you had all the space and time in the world, what would be the ultimate species that you would keep of reptile if you're not already doing so? Um, I would say green tree pythons. Okay. <laughs> For me, they're just they're an endlessly fascinating species. Right. Uh, everyone is a unique individual. They go through some really dramatic color changes throughout life. They have some really great behaviors. Uh, the color combinations that are out there, the palette is about endless. Mm -hmm. So I could probably spend the rest of my life just working with that species and keep, you know, uh, really uh, challenging myself with uh, with what I could do and what the animals can do. I shouldn't say what I could do; it's the animals that are doing it. I'm just happy to try to keep them alive and healthy and, and reproduce, reproduce them. So. Right, right. Now, why is it? Do you think, in your opinion? Why do some people fear reptiles? Uh, I think that's probably primarily a learned behavior. I mean, there's okay. a, you know, I think, you know, if you take most kids, they're pretty inquisitive and they'll, you know, pick up and, you know, hold or try to eat or squish yeah. or do whatever <laughs> with about anything. Very true. And, you know, adults, you know, are protective and parents are certainly protective and, you know, I think because you fear what you don't know, and most people don't know reptiles well enough to know what species are really harmful and which ones are, are you know, beneficial. Uh, of course, they're all beneficial in an ecological sense. Sure. Uh, but, you know, as far as humanity goes, you know, there's certainly some division there. Mm -hmm. And so I think people will, you know, certainly try to teach their kids to, you know, be safe rather than be sorry. Okay. Now, uh, last question uh, for our interview here tonight. What would you say is the most satisfying element of your work on a personal level? Oh, I don't know. I guess, I mean, I really 
I really get a kick out of the whole reproductive process. You know, the, right. uh, seeing the females go through all their uh, hormonal changes and, you know, the egg laying and, you know, maternal behavior in the pythons is, is really fascinating where the females will, you know, basically guard and incubate the clutch of eggs right. until the babies hatch. And uh, although, you know, I've gone to mostly maternal or artificial incubation now rather oh, sure. than maternal, but, uh, you know, I'm just seeing those eggs go on to survive and, and go on to produce the next generation of, of animals is, is really exciting to me. I still get a kick every time I see a baby, you know, slitting an egg or poking its head out and taking its first breath, so. Right. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with you there. The couple of times that I've actually had snakes breed or any type of reptile breed, that first, you know, first instance of them breaking through the egg is pretty, you, I don't think you'd ever get over that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just yeah, the animals awesome are awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the animals are awesome, too, because these babies come out, you know, ready to go out of mom, and, you know, they just are crawling right out, and it's just amazing to watch them just wrap. If they come out of tail first, they just, their tail spins in the air until it hits something, and they grab a hold of it and just pull themselves right out of mom, and they take that big first breath, and okay. it's just really exciting. So Wow. Now, uh, just for our listeners um, who are looking for the website, it is signalherp.com. That's S-I-G-N-A-L-H-E-R-P dot C-O-M. Got all the Correct. information you guys need. Uh, if you need to contact Rico, he is there available via email. Um, got a couple of books also on sale on the website there, as well as yep. if you do buy one of the uh, one of uh, Rico's <coughs> pieces of artwork there, uh, also known as the Green Tree or Emerald Tree Boas. You get a free copy of his uh, owner's manual. Now, is there any uh, closing thoughts that you want to finish off with, Rico, as far as uh, emerald tree boas or green trees or any other captive species that you happen to be breeding at the moment? I don't know. I think, you know, anybody who's interested in getting into the hobby or, you know, looking to keep reptiles or amphibians or whether they're looking just as a hobby or want to become a small breeder or even if they want to become a big-time breeder, I mm-hmm. think... The most important thing is just work with something you enjoy and that you really love. And, uh, you know, don't worry about being out there trying to chase the next, you know, morph or wave or species or market or whatever. If you're in there trying to do it for the money, you'll never succeed. Just, you know, find something you really love and you enjoy and stick with it and, uh, you know, you'll be successful. There you go. I, I can definitely agree with that. And there you go. That was Rico Walder from Signal Herpeticulture. Please do check them out uh, at signalherp.com. And once again, do check out our sponsor, Marsh McGinnis, the wonderful and lovely Marsh McGinnis, offering up all the best African fat tail, leopard gecko, the first and coyomic species as far as the geckos are concerned. And we do ask that you do rate us on iTunes. Uh, drop some comments on the blog. Let us know what you think, uh, what we're doing right. Uh, if we do something wrong, please shoot us an email. And uh, look forward to seeing you in the next episode. And uh, once again, we do encourage you to leave some comments, rate us up. Um, you know, we thrive on your feedback is basically what it boils down to, folks. And do check out the other websites, too. We have reptileapartment.com as well as herphousemag.com. Uh, both of those have from the Reptile Living Room. And we're having a great time, and we hope you guys are, too. Uh, look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>